Special thanks to Acorn TV for sponsoring the show. If you haven't already, try this commercial-free streaming service with us. We've been recommending all of our favorite shows, and you can stream on any device. From all of us at Myths and Legends, we thank Acorn TV for sponsoring today's show, because it's sponsors like Acorn TV that make what we do possible. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code LEGENDS, but you have to enter the code in all lowercase letters. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code LEGENDS, to get your first 30 days for free. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the beginning of a tale about a samurai team-up and a battle against the worst demon Japan has ever seen. Also, how making animals sumo wrestle each other in the woods might get you an invitation to that team. The creature this week is a monster that might be pure evil or a turtle who just wants to take a nap. This is Myths and Legends, episode 223A, The Devil Went Down to Kyoto. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode is set in Japan in the 11th century, though the stories come from the 18th century. We'll just jump right into a mystical land where samurai battle demons, goblins, spiders, and, as I mentioned at the top of the show, make animals wrestle each other in the woods. Kintaro, a boy of eight, sat in a clearing. Of course, he was officiating a sumo match between a rabbit and a monkey, as one does. The deer and the bear were up next. Kintaro had grown up in the forest. The only friends he had ever known were the animals. So, like Mowgli, he could understand their words. Also, he could bench press a metric ton. His mother had been in love with a samurai, brave like the best of them. Well, actually, too brave, it seemed, because he'd stood out above his peers, and his peers had cut him down. They didn't kill him, but they didn't need to. Accused of a crime he didn't commit, the disgraced samurai died within the year. The story doesn't say how, but he breathed his last, just before his young wife realized she was pregnant. The mother, having witnessed the father fall, betrayed by his friends, hated the court, the system that turned warriors into supplicants to feudal lords. She gathered up everything they could carry and disappeared into the night. Who knew if her husband's enemies were coming for her and the baby? Well, she wouldn't wait to find out. Alone, the woman gave birth to a son in a shack in the woods. Kintaro, golden boy, because he was her golden boy her whole life. Over the course of the next year, she transformed that shack in the Ashigara Mountains into a real home for their small family of two. She cleaned, repaired, and crafted a comfortable space. Soon, they fell into a workable routine, and so it was that during a trip into the village to trade, she discovered her son was special. She turned her back momentarily, just as a peasant man approached the boy, finger extended to tickle the chubby infant. Kintaro grinned a toothless grin, gripped the man's finger, bit off the tip, and then broke his arm in three places when he shook it. Screams belted out into the open air, drawing a crowd. 
as mother and baby slipped away. From that day on, Kintaro remained in the forest. In time, he learned to walk and often ambled outside to sit and listen to the animals. And, like I said, eventually learned to communicate with animals of all kinds. That's how, when he was eight, he found himself sitting with a monkey, a rabbit, a deer, and a bear. The boys smiled and stood. How about a wrestling match? Amongst themselves, of course. He wouldn't be taking part. He already knew he was stronger than all them. Naturally, the bear was down. He was a bear. And the other three, sizing up the super-strong human and apex predator, definitely decided out of their own free will to take part in the wrestling match. (laughs) No coercion there. As an aside, imagine hanging out with your friends, and one stands up and says, Hey, you guys wrestle for my enjoyment. And then your other friend, who's like DDP or The Undertaker, because that's all I remember from when I was a kid, says they're super into it and also eats people like you daily. What are you going to say? Other than that, this guy's weekend just got really weird. It should come as no surprise that the bear eventually won. And somehow, none of the others were eaten. Maybe it was because Kentaro shared some of his tasty rice balls at the last moment. No one knows. All I know is that on their way home, they stopped at a rushing river, and Golden Boy, Kentaro, announced that it was his moment to shine. Effortlessly, he tore up a tree by the roots and laid it across the river, forming an impromptu bridge. The animals bowed low and thanked Kentaro as they started across. But as Kentaro crossed the bridge, a pair of eyes narrowed in the darkness of the trees. Yes, yes, this was the one he had been looking for. Who are you? Kintaro's mother shouted, tucking the boy behind her. The stranger held up his hands. Oh, you know, just a simple woodcutter living out here in the forest. And those, Kintaro's mom said, pointing to the blades on the man's belt. The stranger made a show of examining his gear. Why, those, those were just the tools of a simple woodcutter. The, uh... Axes? The mom pressed. Axes, yes! The man snapped his finger. Those were axes, and definitely not samurai swords, and no, she could not see them closer. The mother crossed both arms tightly. Mm-hmm. And what was your name again? The man nodded. Cutter. Woodman? The samurai said, and grinned. Nailed it. No reply came. Instead, the woman locked a cold stare on the stranger's face. She wasn't messing around. Eventually, the stranger's posture fell. His shoulders slumped in retreat. (sighs) Fine. He would just level with this foolish peasant woman. It might be hard for her to realize this. She might not have guessed, but he was a samurai warrior. The mother bristled, catching the samurai off guard. He held up both hands. Whoa, relax. He had been sent to scour the land for boys to bring back to his master. The woman gasped, and the man paused. Huh, yeah. He could have phrased that better. Okay, okay, how about this? He thought her son had what it took to be a samurai too. The stranger closed his eyes, congratulating himself on his own PR skills. But when he opened them again, the mother and the son were gone, the shack door slamming loudly. The man let out an audible sigh. Wow, not what most people did when their peasant children were plucked from obscurity and gifted a fast track to nobility. 
something was definitely up here. He knocked again and explained that the woman need not even open the door. But her son, he was special. What did this woman fear? Surely, she knew it wasn't right to keep him cloistered here his entire life. The world deserved to see how special her boy was. But more than that, he deserved more from life. When no response came, the samurai called out that he would be camping at the closest crossroads for the night. If she changed her mind, she could find him there. He wouldn't bother her again. He turned on a heel, and the door opened. Hesitantly, the mother popped her head out. His master was the famous swordsman, Raiko, a samurai himself, explained the visitor. He didn't believe in just taking on some noble son who believed the world should be handed to him simply because he had won a birth lottery. No, Raiko believed in talent, merit, that it didn't matter where or to whom you were born. If you had what it took, you could achieve greatness. That's why this samurai had been sent out, to scour for the next great samurai, even among the peasant class. He believed he had found it here, in Kintaro. I have to note that this story kind of undercuts its own egalitarian message because Kintaro is a secret noble by birth, but the thought is nice. Anyway, Kintaro's mom wouldn't let Kintaro go without explaining her fears. The backstabbing nature of courtly life, her husband's dishonor and death, it had led to raising the child alone, afraid, in the forest. Nodding and understanding, the samurai explained that Raiko wasn't like that. He didn't tolerate that. The land and the emperor needed a samurai like her son, a young man who was both strong and good. The mother remained stone-faced, but she knew the samurai was right. She couldn't keep her wonderful, giant, super-soldier son here forever. Both he and the world deserved better. So, without a tear, she let her son go. Kintaro, though he was nervous and sad to leave his mother, looked at the two swords on the samurai's belt with excitement as he walked with the stranger down the mountain road toward Kyoto. Years later, in modern-day Kyoto, the imperial capital at the time, it was just after sunset when there was a knock at the door. Watanabe no Suna felt his sword and looked to the box. Hardwood bound by even stronger iron, it should hold. The knock came again, and he yelled for a servant. Would someone find out who that was? Watanabe was something of a celebrity as of late. He had killed the ogre at the Rashomon Gate, after all. There was a general in Kyoto, one named Raiko, who had made it his life's work to rid the land of oni, demons, he had a reputation, too, such that while he was in Kyoto, no demon or ogre would venture near the city, instead seizing inhabitants off nearby roads and dragging them deeper into the forest until their screams were no longer audible. For once, ogres feared humans. Or so Watanabe thought. He had been laughing with some friends one night when someone warned of the ogre that haunted the Rashomon Gate. Watanabe wasn't calling his friend a liar, but whoever had told the samurai that was mistaken. There weren't any demons in Kyoto, not with Raiko in the city. But so insistent were his friends that he took out a scroll 
and had the fellow samurai sign it. It was after dark, right? Well, he would go post that scroll on the Rashomon gate to prove that nothing lurked in the darkness. A group of friends interrupted in disbelief, some jumping to their feet. Nuh-uh, you did not just say that. Oh, I did. No. Yep, I'm going to scroll it. And when I'm right, you guys are all buying for the rest of the month. Silence filled the room as the reality of what was about to take place set in. Few laughed out of fear of what they believed to be true. Be careful, the friends urged. But Watanabe waved a hand, rose, and made for his horse. The fog was thick when he made it to the Rashomon Gate and found it abandoned. The story had spread quickly, it seemed. While he wouldn't admit fear, he was outside the soft glow of the city lanterns and looking out across the misty darkness, punctuated only by the occasional fire stretching off into the night. Swiftly, he turned to the gate, produced a nail, and hammered it in as quickly as possible. There, he did it. Watanabe turned his horse back around to the city when he heard it. Wait, please, called a voice, and he felt it, too. A hand gripped his helmet. Watanabe reached back to see who wanted to die so badly that he would grab a samurai's helmet, and he felt the hair. It was the long, furry hair of an oni sprouting from an arm as thick and as strong as a tree trunk. Watanabe calmed himself, then slashed the arm restraining him in one clean motion. The demon roared, and Watanabe, now freed, pivoted his mount and looked up at the monster. The demon stood as tall as the city gate, took one look at Watanabe and his horse, and roared again. Flames shot from his mouth, and his eyes glowed red. But Watanabe was a samurai, and his horse a samurai's horse. Both stayed exactly where they were. All at once, the flames disappeared, and the roaring ceased, and Watanabe found himself fighting a shadow. Claws sliced at him from the darkness, but his sword rang out against them. He felt a swipe against his robes here and there, but nothing made it through. He wouldn't allow it. Soon, the attacks were no more, the chaos replaced by footsteps thudding off into the forest. Watanabe leaned forward on his horse and followed. It was dark, and while he didn't want to push his horse too hard, there was a demon on the loose. So he gave chase, and his horse obeyed. Soon, they were galloping into the night, the sounds of the demon just ahead of them. But the further they ventured into the woods, the further away the demon moved. And the thicker it became, the more challenging any kind of pursuit proved to be. Soon, they lost the monster altogether. Watanabe sheathed the sword, and with a sigh, turned back to Kyoto. It wasn't hard to find his way back. Just follow the blood. He must have injured the demon pretty badly, because the trail of Oni blood led him all the way back to Kyoto. That's when he saw it evidence of just how deep the injury went. There, laying before the deserted gate, was a giant, hairy, severed arm. In their fight, Watanabe must have hit the beast enough times to cut the arm clean off. No wonder it ran. The samurai jumped down, lashed the red wampa arm to his horse, and made his way back to the city. After that night, Watanabe was a celebrity known throughout the land he'd killed an oni at the gate of the city. Everyone asked to see the arm, and for a while, 
want to not be obliged. Even for a samurai, an oni, one of the demons of the forest, was a rare sight, and a keepsake like this? Almost unheard of. But over time, Watanabe started to get paranoid. Everyone told him the monster was dead. Nothing could survive an attack like that. But Watanabe wasn't so sure. Oni weren't like humans. They were magical and crazy strong. So Watanabe started limiting who could see the arm. But that wasn't good enough. It was still just lying out in the open. So he had a special box forged from hard wood and iron bands. He would not relax until the arm was sealed away and locked. Then, there was that knock at the door. Wantanabe told his servants to turn whoever it was away. He would see no visitors today. But his staff insisted. It, it was his nurse. Wantanabe paused. His nurse? The woman who had raised him? The one who had fed him as a baby? What was she doing here? The woman hobbled in to give the samurai a hug. Wantanabe looked her over and smiled. She had aged since the last time Watanabe had seen her, but she was his nurse. He put his arm around her and led her back to sit. They talked about everything, from his family to the old times to his recent celebrity status. He was disappointed, he shared. He should have taken the monster captive so the creature could pay for his crimes against the city. But at least he wanted to kill it once and for all. The old woman smiled and waved her hand. Was the monster back? Had anyone seen or heard of a demon stalking the woods? Watanabe no sooner shook his head. Well, there was his answer. The demon was dead. Then, as she sipped her tea, she leaned in close. Could, could she see the arm? Watanabe laughed. He patted her on the shoulder. He was afraid not. He had sealed it away where the monster would never get to it. His nurse chuckled. Well, she wasn't a monster. She was the old woman who raised him and was asking him for a favor. Watanabe sighed. He knew, but until it was confirmed that the Oni was dead, no one would see the arm, not even the woman that was closer to him than his own mother. I mean, what if a spy for the Oni should take it back? The old woman laughed and sat back. Oh, now she was a spy for the Oni, was she? Watanabe grinned. Of course not. Silence fell between them for a brief moment, and the woman looked to the floor. <sighs> she understood. It was just that she was getting on in years. It was her hope to see something like this before she died, and she would never have another chance. It was sad enough to miss out on seeing one of the great wondrous things of this world, but to be denied it by the man she had raised from birth? <sighs> She would get over it. Probably. Watanabe rolled his eyes. All right, come on, quickly now. It was behind a heavy door in an inner room, tucked away so that no one would find it. The samurai waved her in and closed it behind her. He brought out the box, undid the lock, and opened it. She stood back, trembling at first. But Watanabe put his arm around her. He told her that, really, there was nothing to be afraid of. The monster wasn't attached to it anymore. Her voice quivered. Look at those claws. The power of that arm. The hair. You fought this? This thing? Wantanabe smiled. Of course. The woman forced herself to walk closer. The samurai asked if she would like to touch it. 
to exceed even her own wildest dreams, since it was so important that she had to guilt him into doing this. She nodded with wide eyes. Yes. Yes, she would. With a trembling hand, she reached out, felt the fur, and exhaled. Finally. Watanabe smiled as she gripped the arm and lifted it, and he was still smiling when she smacked him hard across the face with it. The force of the blow lifted him up off the ground, and he landed hard on the wood floor. Watanabe scrambled to his feet, just in time to watch his old nurse's dress shred to threads as the oni exploded from within. At last, I have my arm back, the transformed monster cried as he massaged the lost limb against the torn socket. In an instant, he flexed his claws. He was healed. Horrified, Watanabe clambered to his feet and charged the demon. The samurai drew his sword, and the oni did not narrow his eyes and breathe fire with a roar, ready for round two. Instead, he shrieked, leapt into the air, and burst through the roof, fleeing into the night sky. Red furballs drifted to the floor, along with bits of ceiling and broken roof, the only result of Watanabe's futile swings. Screams trailed the oni as the monster ran through Kyoto, rushing off toward the forest. Just as he'd feared, the oni had taken his arm back and gotten away. We'll see Watanabe start out on his next mission, but that will be right after this. Sorry about that arm, Watanabe, Raiko said as he rose from the gravesite, inspecting the dirt at the headstone. Watanabe shrugged. Couldn't win them all, right? He looked to his friend, the legendary Raiko. I mean, unless you were Raiko, then you literally won all of them. So why had Raiko asked for his help? The older samurai rose. Some samurai exist simply because their fathers were samurai, or because they were forced into it, Raiko began. There were those who were only interested in their own reputation and fighting blood feuds. Then there were those who served to defend the emperor and the people who knew that there were greater threats out there than a drop in their own fame. With his actions at the Rashomon Gate, Raiko believed that Watanabe was one of those samurai, one who had experienced the danger of the wilds firsthand, one who could be relied upon. Watanabe nodded and thanked Raiko for that, but it also didn't answer his question. Why were they in a graveyard? With a scowl, Raiko pointed to the sky, to the floating skull that was just bopping along without a care in the world, singing a little song to itself. Oh, Watanabe nodded, putting his hand to his bow. Raiko stopped him. It was just a skull. They were going to follow it to see where it was going. So they did. The skull was in no particular hurry and not all that aware of what was going on around it. And the samurai simply ambled on. The sun set, and they still kept walking. They had walked almost all the way back to Kyoto, when, their robes wet with the dew on the long grass, the skull vanished. Well, we're here, the legendary swordsman said and pointed. There, looming in the night, with windows glowing, 
sat a mansion. It looked like it had once been a beautiful home, many years ago, it seemed. The gate was now warped, wrapped in vines, and full of bird nests. Surprisingly, wild orchids and chrysanthemums had long since exploded from the ground, battling for real estate, though the gardens had not been tended for decades. But it seemed like the garden was the only place with any sign of life. As the pair approached the door, Raiko ordered Watanabe to stand guard outside. Should anyone, or anything, approach from the forest? Now, Watanabe realized why Raiko had brought him. Watanabe had faced off with an oni, not once, but twice, and he might have to again on this night. Watanabe nodded and drew his sword. Raiko dipped under the cracked and crumbling doorway, the vines seemingly holding it all together. As soon as Watanabe was alone, thunder cracked and rain poured down in sheets. Well, this was just fantastic. Inside, Raiko crept toward the kitchen and froze. He felt someone, eyes on him from the darkness of the house. Silently, his hand flew to his sword. He drew it and spun around in one skilled motion, bringing the blade to the neck of the lurking creature, or what he thought was its neck. But it wasn't all what Raiko had expected, and he lowered his weapon. Don't stop now, the old woman said, standing there with eyes closed. Please, don't stop now. Raiko sheathed the sword and stood up tall. The woman slowly opened her eyes, and I mean slowly. She had a small metal tool, a kujiri, to lift her giant heavy eyelids. It's like a small spike and she just rolled them up and pinned them back. When they were open, she rested them on her head, where they covered her stark gray hair like a hat. Originally, the samurai thought she had been wearing a scarf, but those those were her lips, wrapped around her neck. She used a hairpin to hold them open while she spoke. The strange woman talked about the changing of seasons, of the years beginning and ending, but her misery being eternal. Who are you? Raiko asked. The woman straightened her back. Well, she was a servant in this house, and she had been so for the last 290 years. She was glad that he had come here. She had been hiding because this place had become a den of demons. It was worth the risk, because a samurai was now here. He could give her what she sought. The samurai looked at her skeptically, and what was that? Death, the old woman chortled. Thunder shook the house. Great timing. She had hoped for so long for a good death, not one that the demons would give her. She wanted only to pray for the Buddha, and she couldn't believe her good fortune in meeting a samurai here. The wait had been worth it. Raiko watched her lip scarf rustle with each word, and the story says that he magnanimously left her to chatter on because of the futility of questioning the old crone further. She was so caught up in her joy of having a samurai to finally kill her that the samurai left before ever getting around to it. Raiko continued on, deeper into the house, until, finally, he reached the center. It was little more than a ruined room, with a broken roof, moss and vines shooting from the floor, and a chilly draft floating through. But curiously, no nests, no dens. Even the animals, the wild things of the forest, didn't want to stay here. 
in the pale moonlight, Raiko saw why. Dozens of eyes opened in the darkness all around him as torches roared to life, revealing monsters, demons, goblins, and other things he had only heard stories of before. Some were smaller than his hand, others filled whole corners of the room, towering above him. There were weasels with knives, red monsters licking bathrooms, a guy with no face and a lone eye on his butthole. You know, weird stuff. A little smiling Buddhist nun skittered from the shadows and bowed before the samurai, before melting into the floor like snow. Raiko stepped around it. Okay, weird. As he walked through the room, the creatures began closing in on him. He rested a hand on his sword, ready for anything. But then, they all stopped. From an adjacent room, just beyond the doorway, came singing. It was a beautiful voice, too. That of a woman. Raiko looked toward the far end of the room. There sat the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. As he approached, she took notice of him, and her song ceased. When he reached a mere three feet away, she began to rise. Raiko was spellbound by her beauty. But he noticed something. There, in the beautiful stranger's hair, was a familiar hairpin one Raiko had seen earlier that night, the one that the old woman had been using to manipulate her lips. But this hairpin was flecked in blood. The stranger had given the old woman death, but not the one she sought, which meant realization and resolve flooded in as the samurai drew his sword, and as he did, the stranger's smile turned cruel. Instantly, she stood and kicked from the hem of her robe, White clouds flew from the fabric and blinded him. But Raiko was still Raiko. He chastised himself for this momentary lapse in focus, but struck out at the woman. He heard a scream, but more than the scream of a woman. As he sliced down at her abdomen, though he knew she had to be there, his sword didn't meet any resistance. It was like he was slicing at a ghost. His sword clattered on the stone, and he brought it up again. It was minutes before he could see again. He spun around the room, sword out, waiting for an attack, but it never came. As the world began to rematerialize, blurred by the light of dawn streaming through the holes in the roof, Raiko saw that there were no longer demons in front of him. But Watanabe, the other samurai who had come with him, soaked through his robes. He'd run in as quickly as he could at the sound of his friend's cries. Raiko nodded in appreciation and bent to inspect his sword. It was broken, the foundation stone to the old manor along with it. Hmm, there were worse ways to break a sword, he supposed. The tip was gone, however, and in the place where the stranger had been sitting was a pool of white blood. It trailed off through the other rooms before emerging out into the garden. Raiko sheathed what was left of his sword, and the pair went outside. It ended up taking most of the day to follow the trail of blood to the mountain in the west, and it was nearly dusk when they arrived at the opening to the cave. Raiko and Watanabe looked at one another, and then to the line of white blood trailing inside. Neither had complained on the trip there, a full day of walking and tracking through the forests and the mountains. Neither would let their fear show now. Raiko took the first step, and Watanabe followed after. It wasn't long until they reached the back of the cave, and a hut. Well, it was less of a hut, 
and more of an anachronistic airplane hangar because of what it housed. In this deserted and desolate place, a spider rolled on her back, crying out. She was gripping her abdomen, which was still bleeding white blood. She was busy inspecting her wound. What happened to her body, she wondered aloud. It was so painful. I mean, not a doctor, but might have been the samurai slashing at it. That tends to hurt. Then she collapsed. Her head fell hard on the stone floor, and her legs went limp. Really? Watsnabi muttered, relaxing his sword. Just like that? That beautiful woman was a massive spider we followed for a day, only to find her dead? As the two samurai approached the body, gripping the hairy bulk to drag it into the daylight, the spider revealed her ruse, snapping back to life and lunging at the two men. With one motion, Raiko drew his broken katana and cut off her head. As it rolled from the straw hut, the samurai stoically sheathed the sword and turned directly to the camera with a toothy smile. Now, she's dead. Watanabe clenched his fist. Ah, oh, bummer, he was just about to do that when Raiko got to her first. He was totally ready, though. Definitely didn't need a new kimono or anything. Together, they walked the length of the body. In her stomach, the stomach Raiko had sliced in the old manor, was a jumble of clanging and clattering skulls. Human skulls. 1,190 heads in all. 1,190 travelers that would never make it home. Families broken or destroyed, and parents without children or children without parents. Then, the spider moved. Once not be backed away, but then realized that the spider wasn't moving. Her abdomen was. He put a hand on it, and something churned within. Raiko, usually the calm one, called out from the other side. He needed help. They had to get out of there. The spider was pregnant. He had started cutting away the lining of the stomach to carry the skulls out, but seeing as a human skull weighs about two and a half pounds a pop, and the combined weight of all the skulls there would be that of a Chevy Silverado, Raiko elected to grab 20 of the smallest skulls, sad I know, from the pile, and urged Watanabe to follow. Seriously, time to go. Clear of the hut, Raiko pulled out a bit of flint and showered sparks into the dry straw of the roof overhead. Immediately, it went up in flames and illuminated the scene inside. The young spiders had torn their way out of their mother's body. They were the size of, quote, an eight-year-old, and, blinded by the light, they shirked back and climbed up to the roof. Running at full speed, both samurai booked it to the mouth of the cave and dove into the early morning air. Thick smoke billowed behind them, masking the carnage within the cave. For the next hour, the men went to work. Watanabe striking down any spider strong enough to brave the light and heat and emerge into the open world, and Raiko, burying the 20 skulls in a solemn ceremony, saying a prayer for all those who had fallen to the spider. When both were finished, the ceremony complete, and the cave smoldering and silent, the two samurai made for home. It took them a few days to return to Kyoto, and when they arrived, they found a city gripped by fear. Word traveled fast, and people said that there was a serial killer on the loose, abducting young women. Those they took were never seen again. The 13-year-old daughter of a magistrate had just been taken. Raiko knew that it wasn't just your average, run-of-the-mill serial killer. 
even before the report from the fortune teller came in, the demons, the monsters he had driven off into the wilderness, were back. And they had a smart, deadly new leader. Next week, our three heroes will team up to fight the greatest demon that Japan has ever seen. They just need to get an invite to his wild party first. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For way less than it would cost to buy an actual giraffe skeleton, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that are way more useful than a giraffe skeleton. Like, who has the money or space for that? Eccentric billionaires? By the way... If you are an eccentric billionaire and are listening, hi, we have a donate link. Doesn't have to be much, maybe just like, I don't know, 10 million, 50 million? That's not a lot for them, right? Anyway, if you don't have a giraffe skeleton fund, but would still like to help support the show and get cool stuff, check out support.mythpodcast.com. Creature this week is the Aspidocellone from Medieval Bestiaries. The Aspidocellone, or Asp Turtle, notice the P in there, is a turtle just minding its own business. But also it might be an agent of Satan. Say you're sailing through the medieval Mediterranean, as we all do, and you spot an island you weren't expecting. Nice, great place to stop off for the night, give your sailors some R&R, maybe stave off a mutiny, good times. You get on the island and find that it's full of all sorts of animals and trees. Must be on a fault line, though, because every time you drive stakes down into it, there's a small tremor. Things are going well until nightfall, when your sailors light up some fires to cook the food they caught. Then, things really get interesting. The sea will start to rise as the ocean roars, and the unexpected island starts to submerge into the sea. Better hope your ships were not tied up too well, because otherwise, they're going down too. Because that island, that island is turtle all the way down. The asp turtle, or shield turtle, is accused of luring hapless mariners onto its back before drowning them. Because, like I've said in previous episodes, there was nothing medieval writers couldn't turn into a Christian allegory. In the second century Christian work where this is mentioned, it says that, quote, such is the fate of all who pay no heed to the devil and his wiles, and place their hopes in him. Tied to him by their works, they are submerged into the burning fire of hell, for such is his guile. I mean, okay, come on. The turtle has been there for generations, long enough to start supporting a whole ecosystem on its back with trees and animals and junk, and suddenly the turtle is an agent of the devil for not wanting sailors to start fires on its back? This is completely not the turtle's fault. Pay better attention to where you're parking your boat, don't set animals on fire, and stop blaming giant turtles who just want to take a nap. Problem solved. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Extra special thanks to Acorn TV. 
Stream thousands of hours of your new favorite shows on Acorn TV on any device at a fraction of the cost of most streaming services. And with exclusive premieres, originals, and award-winning shows across the board, we think you'll love Acorn TV just as much as we do. From all of us at Myths and Legends, we thank Acorn TV for sponsoring today's show because it's sponsors like Acorn TV that make what we do possible. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code LEGENDS but you have to enter the code in all lowercase letters. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV, code LEGENDS, to get your first 30 days for free. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>